This episode is dedicated to none other than Matthew Patrick of Game Theory, who announced on Monday, January 9th, 2024, that he will be retiring from the Theorist channels and spending more time with his family. Regardless of your opinions or my share of comments and criticism of his theories, the man has been a part of many people's childhood and a large figure in the FNAF community and the internet landscape as a whole. He was a man who truly inspired a generation and through all the ups and downs, brought happiness to so many people's lives. Thank you so much for your work, Matthew, and for sharing your art with so many people. You will be missed and always remembered. Why? Why are we doing this? Well, first and foremost, welcome to Into the Night, a Finance of Freddy's podcast. I'm your host, Nick, and I appreciate you tuning in. If it has been clear over the two years of this show, Five Nights at Freddy's holds a significant place in my heart. Scott Cawthon and the entire FNAF community have been part of a journey that's both nostalgic and admittedly challenging to express when faced with disappointment. I don't want to come across as overly negative or mean-spirited, especially in a podcast that in all purposes is supposed to be a celebration of this amazing franchise, its character, its story, and its world. So perhaps the best way to begin this review is to get a little personal. I'm not sure if I have ever mentioned this on the podcast before, but when I was a high schooler, when I started getting into FNAF, I wasn't exactly the cute, charming, confident, vocally talented, and humblest man I am now. I at the very least didn't have this inflated ego yet, that's for sure. Although my mother may say otherwise. I was shy, anxiety-filled, my head always down on the ground wherever I walked. I was isolated, alone, and only had a few friends by my side, but never seemed to have classes with or time to confide in. I was a nerd which obviously meant I couldn't talk to girls. (laughs) In fact, I couldn't talk to most people. I I still recall a horrid memory of when I was in one of my classes, I believe history. We had a roundtable discussion on some historical event. Can't recall. Most likely because the only thing I can recall is when I was asked by someone who probably had the best of intentions at heart that I hadn't talked yet and if I wanted to share my opinion with the rest of the group, The only thing that came out was a quiet, shaky voice, only concerned with not making myself look stupid, only to clearly succeed in doing just that. At least that's how I perceived that event. One of the things that kept my mind off those dark thoughts I had, the thing that kept myself distracted from my anxious tendencies, was Five Nights at Freddy's. I was obsessed with the series and devoured almost every single thing that came out of it, from the games, the fan games, and the entire YouTube scene. I remember I even had a routine during those early days when teasers were released on scottgames.com. I always checked the site during my accounting class because it was the only time I could be on my computer without attracting suspicion and it was right before lunch, so if it did update, I could talk about it with my friends at the cafeteria table. While it may seem childish, and in many ways my love for the series is still callow, because I was distracting myself with the world of FNAF instead of working on myself in the real world, but I wouldn't have been able to make those first steps to improve myself without this game series to help me relax and engage my brain. The creator of the series itself, Scott Cawthon, has also always been an inspiration for me. I've said this before and I'll say it again, Scott is the pinnacle of the American dream. He is a true worker who proves that with enough time, love, and dedication to your work and craft, you can become successful in whatever industry, art, or service you choose to be in. I don't think I would have gotten into my passion for writing and story crafting if it wasn't for Five Nights at Freddy's story. 
both the narrative it created and the backstory of its creator. I love this series. I love the original games created by Scott Cawthon, which is why it pains me so much to have to make this review. But because I do love this series, it's why I have to both make this review and to be as honest and blunt with my conclusions. Conclusions that, even if I swallow what I would rather the series subjectively become, are ones that indicate an objectively flawed story state that is currently being held together by duct tape and glue rather than a solid foundation. The need for unfiltered honesty, particularly when criticizing Hell 1 or 2 in the current state of modern FNAF lore, stems from a recent storm of the Five Nights at Freddy's subreddit. For those not in the know, about two weeks before this episode goes live, a user on the FNAF forums on Freddit claimed to have received an email from none other than Scott Cawthon himself, in which Scott confirmed that both the FNAF novella series, Fazbear Fright and Tales from the Pizzaplex, are equally canon to the lore, existing in the same continuity and universe alongside the video games they are based on. This has been a divided topic for some time. The community has been separated into camps believing that Fazbear Fright isn't canon whilst Tales from the Pizzaplex is, which is where I belong. Some choose to believe both the book continuities are equally canon, or some believe both book series are non-canon and are just parallels to the series, with the biggest proponent of this claim being none other than MatPat of Game Theory himself. Now, to anyone who isn't easily fooled by AI deepfakes, most people could probably tell that this email was faked just through even the logic of the scenario itself alone. Scott rarely, if ever, responds to fan emails like this, and when it comes to massive lore reveals or confirmations on theories, he often only does so on public forums, such as the Steam community discussion forums, or more commonly, on the FNAF Reddit. To make such a big reveal and do so with the most nonchalance is not in any capacity a move reflective in Scott Cawthon's character. However, due to the blossoming debates and arguments that have grown across Reddit, Twitter, and YouTube comments when it comes to the state of the FNAF lore, this clearly fake email lit a massive blaze of anger and divisiveness across the entire FNAF theorist community, as those who wanted both book series to be canon blindly accepted this to be true, while those who wanted it to be fake blindly accepted the email to be a lie. The debate was fears and everyone was asking the same thing. Scott Cawthon, please come back from your throne on high and answer our questions. Let us know if this email is real, or at the very least let us know what is canon or not canon to the series. We need answers. We need peace. And lo and behold, Scott Cawthon, the very next morning, came to Reddit with a response. First, a dismissive comment on the original post, clearly displaying that the entire idea of him emailing a random fan was ridiculous and completely out of his character. Okay, well, there we have it. But that comment wasn't as widely seen because the user who faked the email had made a second post, which garnered more attention, which was his attempt at proving the fake email. So Scott commented again on this post, only this time, he had a different choice of words in responding. Quote, I'm not sure if the email itself was faked or if someone posing as me sent it, but anyone who knows me after all these years should know that this isn't how I would address such a serious topic. So let me take this opportunity to be as clear as possible. Concerning what people are saying about the canonicity of the books, yes, that is correct. I hope that clears things up. Everyone have a great weekend. End quote. <sighs> oh boy. Now, to be fair, this is in character with Scott. He loves to troll his fans and make light of his mess-ups and poke fun of controversies that seem to be ridiculous. As most people have pointed out, his choice in words concerning the canonicity of the books is almost word for word his response on the gender of the mangle, a question that well, can get you in hot water nowadays. At the time, Scott simply jested that the right answer was... Yes. However, while the mangled debate response was primarily a joke that landed on point with people across the FNAF spectrum, 
laughing at the response and equally amused the troll for such a ridiculous debate. To say no one is laughing this time around is an understatement. I don't think I have ever seen a response from Scott with this much pushback from the community. Even when Scott was cancelled, pretty much nothing but love was shown from the FNAF community that wasn't chronically on social media. Instead of mending the wounds or extinguishing the fire, Scott accidentally tried to douse the flames of debate with water, but mistakenly threw a gallon of gasoline. While I can't say Scott made a wrong choice of words in the controversy, as proving whatever side of the argument there was would have set a bad precedence either way. After all, if Scott did say that Fazbear Frights were canon or wasn't after this email, it would just create the new meta of inventing new ways in which Scott Cawthon miraculously got in contact with someone to tell them the FNAF lore, generating enough buzz and arguments to force Scott's hand. While that trend probably wouldn't last long as people would catch on, it would be present long enough to plague the entirety of 2024, and it was probably best to nip it in the bud by refusing to give what the hoaxer wanted by confirming FNAF lore. However, while I defend Scott on his choice of words, I can't help but be critical when it comes to how we got here in the first place. Now the fault for the controversy getting as big as it did comes from the hoaxer, but all they really did was expedite a problem that was always going to become more and more massive the longer it was ignored. And that controversy was created by Scott Cawthon's inability to properly communicate to his audience about what is and what isn't fair game in his world. Theorizing FNAF lore is fun, but the fact there is this huge aspect of the franchise that just exists in this ether of ambiguity, somehow both applicable to the modern FNAF lore while not being applicable at all, is an absolute travesty in story and franchise management. How is anyone supposed to work with these books if we don't know nor understand how we're supposed to use them, and on top of that, neither do the writers or game developers seem to have a clue on that either. I could talk at lengths about the FNAF communication problems, and I have made my stance on being a FNAF fan requires a huge commitment to constant monetization of various channels to stay informed on the series projects, more so than any other fandom, because there is no centralized PR, blog, or information center online for it. But truthfully, that is only an aspect of the modern FNAF experience that is causing the divisiveness and arguments within the fandom. Because the real issue is the underlying problem of the dubiousness of the book series canonicity and the issues regarding communication between creator and audience. But the fruition of that ambiguity is merely a crop that was harvested to a disappointed mass. For the seeds that were planted were what caused the entire product to go bad. And that seed was nothing more than poor decision making. Poor decision making based on satisfying all, which only resulted in pleasing no one. And that is the problem that has plagued the entirety of the FNAF franchise even before Steel Wool got involved. Really, this problem began in Ultimate Custom Night, aka FNAF 7. When Scott, in his final project, chose at the final moment he would be able to have his hands directly in the crafting and refining process for one of his franchise's entries, the final time he would be holding the pen to directly write a chapter in his story, he decided not to answer the largest question in the entire Finance of Freddy's universe. Who is Golden Freddy? At that point in time, the community was, at large, satisfied with the belief that the crying child was Golden Freddy. It had issues, but it made for a satisfying narrative that flowed well with the information that had been revealed thus far. It made the most sense from a satisfying narrative perspective for both the characters of William Afton and especially Michael Afton. The story as a whole was complete. All the games felt like one big story that had its final chapter and we could either close the book and start a new one, or continue on and find stories between the pages. Then Ultimate Custom Night released, which gave Golden Freddy a new marker as the one you should not have killed, putting into question Golden Freddy's identity. 
the survival logbook released, which ultimately destroyed the entire purpose and story of FNAF 4 by overcomplicating it for no reason. And then Fazbear Fright got involved, with the Stitch Ray storyline and the man in room 1280, both of which now implied that this never-before-seen character named Andrew was possibly the true identity of the one he should not have killed, despite the fact that Golden Freddy was promptly displayed in UCN, which then later resulted in the theory that Golden Freddy was possessed by two spirits inside of one animatronic body. In a matter of several steps, Scott Cawthon basically not only killed the mystery of Golden Freddy by overcomplicating him with so much information instead of giving a direct answer, he basically killed all interest in the character of Golden Freddy himself. I don't know a single person who theorizes FNAF lore who genuinely enjoys Golden Freddy, and the larger FNAF audience has basically almost universally blocked out the character from the entire fandom, if not memory. Oh, don't believe me? When was the last time you saw Golden Freddy fan art, or someone discuss Golden Freddy in any matter that was a positive, besides the character's portrayal in the movie? And it should make obvious sense why this is the case. What are the most popular moments of the entire FNAF series? William after getting Springlock in FNAF 3, the crying child getting his head crushed in FNAF 4, the scooper and Michael Afford's reveal in Sister Location, and most especially, the true ending of FFPS. Henry's speech is so spectacularly well done, so well written and portrayed, that to this day it stands as a pinnacle piece of writing. So much so, the people who don't even play Final at Freddy's know of that ending. But this speech, Michael Abton's reveal, and William Abton getting springlocked, were all accomplished through the hard work of dedicating to a story, and in the process, committing to the answers they were giving. And to do that, they would have to destroy some fan headcanons. The poor decision making that's currently plaguing the series is based on Scott not wanting to disappoint anybody's headcanon, which we know Scott is hesitant to do, and it's resulted in him indirectly slowly killing his narrative in all matters of interest and mystique. Once again, consider Golden Freddy. All information, because there are no answers and by all accounts there is no story, is contradicting. Instead of biting the bullet and accepting either a retconned answer or committing to whatever would be the most narratively satisfying, Scott danced around the issue, unbeknowingly dancing on the grave of Golden Freddy himself. And this poor decision making extends to all aspects of modern FNAF lore. Scott's choice to be vague and give no answers effectively make it so there is no story, as a mystery with no answers is a story without purpose. What is there to be satisfied about if there is nothing to be gained from all the effort you invest into something? Which is why so many people have been critical of the storylines presented in the Steel Wool era. We started out somewhat fine with Help Wanted, with the only issue being that the small aspect of world building and how Fazbear Entertainment was able to be resurrected after FFPS, aka FNAF 6, was basically ignored because Scott himself probably had no answer for this. Then Security Breach releases, and the story present is so vague and incomprehensible without the audience themselves employing their own reasoning for character motivations, meaning in environmental storytelling, and making up any lore that isn't directly shown or implied to make sense of the plot. Why is Gregory in the pizzeria? He just is. Why is Glamrock Freddy not hunting Gregory like the rest of the Glamrocks? He just is. Why do the Glamrocks have such humanistic personalities, with Stilication all but implied that human-slash-AI personality in the animatronics was a direct result of them being possessed with either souls or supernatural magic? They just are. Why does Vanny go back and forth between wearing a rabbit costume and a security guard outfit? She just does. Why does Fazbear Entertainment hide Glamrock Bonnie's death instead of slapping another Bonnie shell in another animatronic? They just don't. What even is the purpose of the blob? It just is. Ruin didn't fix any of these issues either. Like Phasma Entertainment's resurrection, it just ignores any and all of its plot holes. It approved upon the setup. Cass's story is much easier to follow and understand. It isn't anything deep, but hey, some effort in the storytelling then making everything the equivalent of an inkblot test shows that a little effort was put in the story of the project. But beyond Cassie, were any of these questions, these 
Mysteries answered in ruin? No. Instead, we got The Mimic, and people clapped. Never in a video game fandom had I felt more like I was in the plot of Emperor's New Clothes. When I see something utterly ridiculous and clearly abhorrent on all objective measurements of storytelling, and the audience at large clapped. They clapped because it was a thing from the books. They clapped because it was a reveal, and you clap when reveals happen. But there was nothing to it, no buildup at all to its existence in Secure Breach because everything in that game points to the mimic being Springtrap. And the amount of effort and research one would have to do to understand that the mimic is not William Afton borders on the ridiculous. If any other franchise were to have tried this stunt, they would be laughed and mocked by the entire gaming community for how utterly pathetic and, I hate to say it, greedy of a move would be to lock your plot behind an entire book series. But it is FNAF, which has this built-in preconception that whenever it gives an answer, it automatically has to be good. The series has built such a desire in its audience to find the answers, to locate the reasoning behind the events that transpire in the series and the unknowable in its world, that it tricks anyone who goes down that rabbit hole that there is gold buried beneath it. And there used to be gold, and there still is. It just exists in the first six FNAF games, and after that, it's fool's gold. The modern story has utterly and humiliatingly made terrible decision after terrible decision when it comes to a narrative structure, world building, and execution of its ideas, which possibly the only defense I have ever heard from any FNAF apologist lashing out whenever modern FNAF lore gets any criticism is, they liked the idea. To which I have to say, fair enough. In fact, I agree with you for the most part. The idea of the mimic in a more AI present world is fascinating. The idea of the Glamrocks being so close to sentient and human as technology has allowed in this world is an interesting evolution of the story of Stilocation. And an overarching story that spans across books and games feel like a natural evolution to the FNAF story. But we have to admit when ideas fail, or at the least in the case of Security Breach, Ruin, and both Help Wanted games, when they just fail in execution. And FNAF's poor decision making has rotted not just the entire story, but the entire foundation in which FNAF is predicated on. From kidifying the graphics, the story, and characters, so the series can appeal to everyone, ignoring the fact that FNAF already did that and it was beloved because of how real and immersive it was. The games are now basically impossible to be scary, because it is so obvious to everyone they are dealing with a cat that has lost its claws. Imagine if Courage the Cowardly Dog decided to pacify itself and smooth out its rough edges, making the monsters less disturbing, making the voice acting less uncanny. Wouldn't it just lose all sense of horror, dread, and charm? It would, because the story of a cowardly dog that runs away from monsters that aren't scary is Scooby-Doo. Horror needs fangs. It needs to feel real and it needs to be somewhat adult because there is nothing scary in a kid's world. It is too imaginative, too naive, and too pure. Why do you think no one has basically fucking died in this series besides ones that are heavily implied? Jeremy getting his face cut off and Cassie's dad getting stuffed in a staff bot are gruesome storylines, but it loses all its grit in a world as bright and colorful as this and there isn't enough dread or realism to contrast it. If Sister Location and FFPS dip their toes into the science fiction and fantasy world, the Steelwall era has been a CIA waterboard of make-believe. And finally, this poor decision-making resulted in giving a company who by all accounts their history had only worked on VR games free reign to create a promise AAA video game. I say this, Without any, and, and I truly mean, any ill will towards Steel Wolf, its developers, and any and all members of its staff. But if you don't think that the last five years of FNAF have not sucked because Steel Wolf has been the ones working on it, 
That is the strongest load of copium I have ever seen. Help Wanted was a great VR game, and I still stand by my statement that it is the best FNAF game for both an immersive and authentically tense FNAF experience. It is at the very least the best way to replay FNAFs 1 through 3. But it is only now after witnessing what they do in their sequel, when they have no framework to go back to, no Scott Cawthon created product to replicate, that it becomes clear that Steelwool sucks at making horror games because they don't know how to create horror games. I should preface before starting my review that I did not buy Help Wanted 2. I did play it, and I watched my friends play it on their VR devices, but I stood true to my commitment in Ruin that I would not buy another Steel Wolf game. However, before I get into my full thoughts on the game, I want to end off this eulogy with this final note. I still love FNAF, and I do think the series has been improving in some capacity, even if the games have somewhat begun to falter. The books have become much better, the movie was incredible, and the fan game scene has still been impressive, and the artists that are in this community are some of the most incredible and talented people I have ever seen on the internet. And even with all my complaints with Help Wanted 2 when it comes to its story, its atmosphere, and its daring label as a horror game, especially a Five Nights horror game, if you just want to have a fun, light-hearted VR game filled with stress puzzles to play together with your friends, Help Wanted 2 is perfect. It is still a professional, highly polished game you'll have fun with. And if you want to give it a try, I can assure you, it is well worth the price, and I highly encourage you to do it, if you have the ability to give it a go. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game that lets you take command of your own team of your favorite Marvel superheroes and villains to take on interdimensional threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse in an action-packed turn-based squad tactic RPG extravaganza. Embark on an extensive campaign, completing challenging missions as you fight your way through the expansive Marvel Universe, collect valuable loot, enhance the powers of your favorite characters, and level up to acquire new gear, unlock formidable attacks and abilities, and customize your characters with costumes inspired by the most infamous storylines. Did that get your attention? As we speak, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating its six-year anniversary. But here's the real kicker. New users signing up through our link and using the promo code MAXPOOL get an exclusive treat. You'll instantly add the Merc with the Mouth Deadpool to your roster, complete with character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, and gear. Also, please note that these sponsorships help support the production and the hours we put into creating content for you. So downloading this game, using the link in the description, and giving it a try would help out this podcast immensely. The game is free, and using the code MAXPOOL gets you a ton of free starting loot, so you got nothing but to gain for giving the game a try right now. Thank you once again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Help Wanted 2, in many ways, is similar in concept to the original Help Wanted. You play as a Fazbear Entertainment employee who is going through a worker orientation on the various roles and tasks you'll have to perform inside the Freddy Fazbear Mega Pizzaplex. From parts and service, arts and crafts, food prep and delivery, and entertainment fulfillment. There are 40 levels in all for you to complete, a ton of unlockable items for you to collect, and a whole host of animatronic friends waiting to meet you again. From the glam rock band and security breach to the fun time gang and sister location. For the most part, most of the levels and minigames are more reminiscent of Steelwool created games from the first Help Wanted, instead of the more classic FNAF experiences. Very few sections involve the staple survival of 6am, and instead most challenges are objective-based puzzles and magic games, from making the Fazbear Cola soft drinks by mixing together the right ingredients, painted by color with the daycare attendant, and fulfilling orders in the food court. The levels are segmented into six different categories, each with different theme to the minigames within. The minigames in each category often don't coordinate when it comes to the gameplay style, usually it's only just the theme or the location of the minigame. At the sake of being too clerical, let's go over each and every category and their respective gameplay style. The first collection is the Backstage, home to Arts and Crafts with the Daycare Attendant and the Glamrock Beauty Salon with the Staff Bots and Roxy. 
The minigames are pretty similar in that both require you to match an object in front of you with a prompt you are given on a monitor to your right. When it comes to the Superstar Daycare section, Arts and Crafts involves an overly long game of painting by colors, making a paper plate pal, and then making a paper plate pal that you have to paint by color, all while being timed and if you let the clock run out, then you make the sun descend on you. The crux of the challenge comes from having to use a dart gun to shoot at props on cardboard targets far away from where you are to get whatever item you need, whether it be a brush to paint or to get parts for your paper plate pal. Of course, be sure to not hit the crescent moon emblems, because hitting three in a row turns the lights off, leading to the moon coming out. The salon is very similar. You are given a prompt depending on whichever difficulty you select, for either an assortment of staff bots or Roxy. The difference from the Superstar Daycare is that the image used to instruct the player on how to basically paint by color is very clear, as the difficulty of the game is primarily reliant on your ability to aim and manage your time on crafting the project. Salon instead makes the challenge being how to decipher what you need to do on each prompt, as you are given various boxes that declare what color and style makeup to apply and what accessories to give your client, with of course increasing difficulty restricting how much time you have to check on your instructions, with the staff bots being pretty nonchalant, Roxy requiring you to occasionally pay attention to her, and the final challenge has Roxy occasionally throw a temper tantrum that requires you to calm her down before continuing your spa day. Overall, backstage isn't exactly... Scary. It's hard enough, uh, especially Daycare 2, where it is really hard to micromanage your tasks with how always present the moon is. The only tension that exists is that omnipresent timer, however. These are fun challenges, no denying that, but not exactly a horror experience. Really, the only one that comes close to that is, once again, Daycare 2, with its opening cinematic of the distraught daycare tenant being pretty disturbing. Next up is Fascade, which is probably the least scary collection of minigames. But at the same time, I think it's the only one not really trying to be a collection of horror minigames. After all, the theme for most of these minigames are exactly as advertised. Games to play in either the Fascade or somewhere else in the Pizzaplex. These include making music with DJ Music Man, Bonnie Bowl, a whack-a-mole knockoff called Bonkabon, and Fazer Blast. DJ Music Man's section is definitely a visual spectacle. That first time seeing DJ Music Man approach you, and the awe you get when you get the juxtaposition between your height and the monstrosity of the Music Man is mesmerizing. The music is catchy, and the combination of how goofy Music Man is with his animations in conjunction to how tense you get when he is judging your song choices is a lot of fun. But with that said, man, this minigame is kind of basic. It's pretty much an easier matching minigame, way easier than even arts and crafts in the salon, because you can't really fail this. You were given so much time, can always check your work before submitting, and the enemies they add later on to distract you never really present a challenge. Bonnie Bowl is kind of similar in that way, but the opposite. It's fun, it's bowling, but it feels the need to every other set cause some random event to occur. It's an interesting concept, but because nothing is exactly a threat, and the instructions you get before the game starts already give you a hint at what's to come, you're not exactly surprised at any of it. It is funny to throw a bowling ball at the plush babies, which, just a forewarning, Steelwood just had an obsession with those things when making this game. This may sound strange, but I think I would have preferred it if they just played this mini game straight. You can have your every set mechanic of changing up how the lane works, Having the pins approach closer, having gators pop at both sides, raising the gutter walls for trick shots, that's all cool. But the threats make the game so much more slower that I don't really see anyone coming back to this minigame. Magabon's fun though. Simple, yet again, it's just whack-a-mole, but with Bonbon, Bonnet, and Blush Baby. Blush Baby can also kill you, so you can focus on her most of all. Interesting enough, the game says this minigame takes place in Circus Baby's Pizza World. Cool to see that it looks exactly like a Freddy Fazbear's Pizzeria. Huh. It's like when Scott teased Fredbear in UCN and it was just Golden Freddy with a purple hat and bow tie. Not exactly wrong for doing that, just kind of lame. Then we got Fazer Blast. Only that this version of Fazer Blast isn't the laser tag game from the Pizzaplex. It's instead a carny game hosted by this strange brown bear simply called the Carney or, as I like to call him, Retextured Lefty. 
I have to give credit to the aesthetics, and it's cool to see a return of the Fall Festival location from the original Help Wanted's DLC with Curse of Dreadbear, and the game actually has a nice progression. The first version of the game is straightforward, literally just a target game, no jump scare or tension, then it adds a ball you can throw to hit specific targets, while at the same time adding plush babies, holy crap, why are they all over this category? The third adding a dark gun from the Archie Craft area, so now you have to manage two gun types, as well as the balls, along with the plush babies. Then a final boss section where you have to use all three tools in order to win. Once again, none of these sections are scary. None of them are really trying to be though, I think. But I like them all. They are fun, usually all pretty quick, except Bonnie Bowl. And are relatively easy to overcome so you won't get burned out on retries, so I think this category had the most fun I had in the game. Staff only as the next category is kind of this game's version of parts and services and vent repair from the first Help Wanted. While they don't reach the heights of those two sections from the original game, they're still pretty... Alright. Well, hold on, let me explain. We got four mini game types to choose from. Cold Swords with Glamrock Freddy. First Aid in the Freddy Fazbear's Pizza Place. Fizzy Fast with the Staff Bots and Indo Warehouse with the Glamrock Indos. Cold storage is pretty much parts and service, but worse. Like, legitimately, this section just sucks when compared to the original Help Wanted. Everything that made those parts and service levels great are absent in this minigame. Hand unit is gone and is replaced by Glamrock Freddy, and unlike the original game, you never have to worry about the instructions lying to you, so you never feel concerned or no, you don't have this need to constantly pay attention. You're pretty much at eye level with Glamrock Freddy, where in the original game had it set up so you were always at chest level to the animatronics, even when they were sitting down, making you feel so small in these massive robots' presence. And the way you tinkered with each of the robots, removing Bonnie's eyeballs and messing around with Freddy's endo chest, were all realistic, gritty, creative, and dirty. This has since been replaced with this science fiction technology with a clean and polished dilf bot cracking jokes throughout the whole process. And is it me? Or does this entire section just look... fan-made? It's like a level you see being created in a Roblox FNAF game. Seriously, fuck this section. First aid is a lot better though. Taking inspiration from FNAF 6, you have to perform a medical exam on Helpy while keeping both his screams and ads playing on your monitor down to not attract any animatronics in the vents that have been salvaged. By all accounts, it's another matching game, but I can't say that it isn't unique, and the section probably has the funniest moments in the entire game. The amount of abuse you dispense on Helpy is so cruel and played so straight that you feel so laughably evil throughout the whole minigame, which actually makes you jump whenever an ad plays. Never do you go from feeling like a god, belittling a mortal under your all-powerful thumb, to the scaredest of little tykes once you hear the sound of an infomercial beckoning a monster from the shadows to come and get you. I love it. Then there is Fizzy Faz. I do not like Fizzy Faz. The game is simple enough. You have an ingredient dispenser to your left with cameras to your right, and you have to match an order of ingredients by dispensing them in a canister, then send it down a tube before time runs out. Three strikes and you're dead. All the while, your ingredients are being processed by staff bots that you have to monitor throughout the production process, in case they get a little too jaded from the burnout. As I guess the staff bots have developed enough sentience that if you overwork them, they can go on strike. What was the point of having robots again? The problem that this game has is the managing your ingredients with the whipping of the staff bots into shape is a difficult ordeal until you realize that the timer of sending your orders doesn't matter in the sense that sending it with 30 seconds left means the same thing as sending it with one second left. And since the ingredients last throughout the whole night, the clear strategy develops of just waiting out the timer to build an excess of ingredients that you never have to worry about, the staff bots protesting. Oh, and did I mention yet this is a matching game with a timer? No? How about the fact that this is a minigame that isn't scary in the slightest, and by all accounts shouldn't even have a jump scare? Finally, there is Endo Warehouse, where you are trying to teach a Glamrock Endo how to behave through a matching game with a timer. Are you kidding me? Does Steel literally only have one idea for minigames? At least the visuals for this section are a lot better than the previous two. The ambience for the Endo Warehouse is a lot better than First Aid and Fizzy Faz, mainly because seeing the Glamrock Endos wander around like zombies as you try to play this matching game is a lot of fun. 
And unlike Music Man, where you can check your work, you are limited to how many times you can do that per section. So when things starting to get down to the wire, it can be an on-your-edge experience. Comic Glamrock Endo W, once again, these guys somehow come out with one of the best parts of the entire game again. Up next is Food Prep. Only one minigame in this section, but with three levels of difficulty. I'm going to give you three guesses on what this game type is, and the first two don't count. If you answered, matching game with a timer, you would be right. Although, like the Endo Warehouse, I'll give it up to Steel Wolf for the visuals and the detail. The process of making the food is so unnatural and gross that the cynicism they have for corporate fast food is just dripping off of every mechanic in the game. Also, when Glamrock Chica gets involved, the experience once again becomes a lot more comical. Not very scary, but still a lot of fun. Next we have Ticket Booth with the Carousel and Foxy's Log Ride making a return from Dreadbear. I'm just going to quickly say that Foxy's Log Ride is just a better version of the Log Ride game with Curse of Dreadbear DLC. It's a lot bigger, longer over a lot, lot more fun. Plus it is cool to see that Foxy's role was in the Pizzaplex before I guess he got kicked out. Foxy being a pirate cowboy is also so creative that I kind of wish he was an actual animatronic just to see what he would look like. Shame they didn't get Christopher McCullough to reprise his role as Foxy though, especially because his voice was in the original Help Wanted. Carousel, however, is fantastic. This is the experience I wanted from a FNAF game. It's pretty much a heightened version of the vent repair minigame, only this time around you are in the center of a carousel trying to fix it while Moon is constantly approaching you. The dread of trying to focus on working on whatever task is in front of you while having to deal with this cackling robot breathing down your neck is so fantastic. The animation work is solid, the visuals of Moon are perfect, but holy crap could they please get Kel to do a few grunts and groans instead of reusing the same voice line from Security Breach. This minigame is like... 8 minutes long, and he uses the same voice line whenever you shine a light in his face to stun him. Every. Time. You guys got Kellen back to reprise his role, why didn't you do this? Oh, and remember when I made a jest of how Plush Baby is used a lot throughout the game? Let's just say, she ain't got shit on Moon. Finally, the last minigame collection and the biggest of the bundle is Sister Location, a reprised collection of minigames based on Pop Goes Evergreen. No, of course not. It's based on FNAF 5 Sister Location, obviously. Some levels are one to one VR recreations, some are similar sections they have altered to be a bit more challenging or different from the original, or completely new sections using Sister Location as a backdrop. I won't talk long about this because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's Sister Location. They did a good job picking out the minigames. Explorer's Gallery, Funded Freddy's Breaker Room, and the Private Room were all good areas to bring back and recreate in VR. Plus, the original games, in particular Circus Babies, was absolutely fantastic. Super eerie, super creepy, and dripping with classic FNAF charm, just elevated with a higher budget in VR. Hmm, I don't know if it's just me, but isn't it strange how the one and only time every single section of the game where I found the horror to be on point, the game tends and the experience one-to-one -to, -one to what I expect from a FNAF game, it turns out to be the one folder of games literally based on pre-existing Scott Cawthon creative projects. Hmm. Okay, I have alluded to this throughout my whole summary of the gameplay, but we have to talk about it. What is going on with the atmosphere of Steel Wool? Why is your horror game not even trying to be scary. In Security Breach, it was a matter of the entire environment being too bright and clean. In Ruin, it was just too bright. And in Hellwood 2, it's like they didn't even try to make a horror game. The environment of the Pizzaplex was already so antithetical to a horror game that it is so difficult to make it an area where you can feel unsafe because of how colorful, expansive, and lived in the place feels. Seriously, just turn out the lights and commit to it. That means making the environment dark, and I don't mean pretend dark like Ruin where the flashlight has the same purpose as the flashlight in Luigi's Mansion 3. Pointless because the environment, even when supposedly bathed in the shadows, is still in an environment in which you can easily navigate without any issue. A big reason for why Sister Location and Carousel also worked was because of how they utilized FNAF's trademark contradictory gameplay format. Of course, Sister Location has this because, duh, Scott made it. But in the case of Carousel, there is an inherent contradiction in the gameplay of trying to manage fixing this machine in front of you, while there is something trying to kill you from behind, and the more you fix the machine, the louder and more distracting it gets. 
making it harder for you to do both jobs, upping the tension, difficulty, and threat all the same time alongside your progression. There is no real contradiction, dread, or ambient horror in any section outside of a select few because, like I said, Steelwolf can't make horror games. Their solution to every single minigame to make it scary is to add a loud timer for tension, which works to make a game tense, but so does the timer for Mario Party. That's only one part of the formula, not the whole cake. Then they added jump scare as a fail state because, duh, that's what you do in horror games. You have jump scares when player dies. Ignore the fact that even FNAF had you just black out in FPS, and always make sure the environment reflected a reason for the jump scare to occur because of how deadly and dangerous the situation is. The jump scares in this game are so pointless it borders on the pathetic. Why does the chef bot have a jump scare? Would it not be more in character and hilarious if they just berated us for failing and kicked us out because we were a worthless, dirty human prone to error? The main hub, at least, is pretty cool. It's full of neat little easter eggs, it's doubly cool that it's the main room in Freddy Fazbear Pizzeria Simulator, and without spoilers, you do gain access to both a pre-fire and post-fire version of the lobby, which is such a cool detail. But once you learn why this game is even occurring in the true plot of it all, why the hell are we even down here? I guess this is as good a point as any to start talking about the story of Hell 1 2. Spoiler alert, I am not going to be censoring myself, so if you don't want to be spoiled, go ahead and skip to my final thoughts. So, the story of Hell 1 2, in layman's terms, in a way that cannot be truly contradicted nor debated, is the following. We play as Cassie's father, a Fazbear Entertainment engineer who also happens to be the Bonnie Bully from FNAF 4, which was one of the kids who were friends with Michael Afton who accidentally killed his little brother, the crying child, in Finance of Freddy's 4. Cassie's father, for reasons unexplainable by logic or reality, has taken a job with Fazbear Entertainment in his 50s, seemingly trying to do jobs around the Pizzaplex. Now, it is unknown for what reason because, to be honest, it doesn't appear like Fazbear Entertainment is trying to refurbish the building, but it doesn't seem like they're trying to reclaim anything that can be salvaged. Everything just seems to be languishing, you know that people seem to be around the building. Oh, and before you ask, no, there's no reason for him to be in the FFPS building. I don't even know how he got there. We do know he is equipped with a Vanny mask, which this game confirms is actually a mask that Fazbear Entertainment seems to give its employees to perform their duties. The plot is totally not on fire right now, it's just a dry heat. Eventually, after acquiring a Faz wrench, you are able to deactivate an AR dampener from Ruin that was hidden behind a wall, next to a Princess Quest arcade cabinet, a minigame that Steel Wool wants you to care so much about, but I have to be honest, might be the most annoying part of this entire modern series lore from how the 8-bit minigames used to be used, which then allows you to actually touch your face in VR and take off of any mask you were wearing that was altering your surroundings to access the true decrepit burned out version of the pizzeria in FNAF 6 aka how it looks in reality and not in VR. Depending on what ending you get, which seems to both be true if you can wrap your head around that, it appears that Cass's father helped out Vanessa, either knowingly or unknowingly we don't know, and helped purge the glitch trap virus from her mind. Still no answer as to how that works beyond the game saying that's what occurs, but ignore that. The game has a giant Vanny squashes small glitch trap in her hands. It's epic and visually cool, eat it up. Additionally, after Cassie's father does this, he's attacked by Glistrap again, or at the very least the Mimic, and it stuffs him into a staff bot before sending it with the Vanny Mask up to the surface where it encounters Cassie, playing one of the opening cutscenes from Ruin, but now from the staff bot's perspective, revealing that the mask Cassie wears was not only her dad's, but it was given to her by a robot that had her dad's body crumpled inside it, possibly even his soul, if Scott and Stu will remember Ghost and the Paranormal exist in this franchise. <sighs> okay. So, first of all, stop. Just stop. It's not working. I don't care. And at this point, anyone who doesn't care isn't coming back after Ruin. Vanny is quite possibly the most useless and pointless character ever written. I have never seen a character more pointless. People compare it to Michael Afton a lot as a character that is compelling but got screwed out of the time they should have been given in their respective games. But man, when you compare the writing when it comes to actions, symbolisms, and themes, holy crap. Micah at least had a plot and character. 
Vanny is nothing but a slim chick in a fetish artist's design for an acted acolyte. I love how the game implies both endings are true, and it's cool that the game is a paraquil that takes place between Security Breach and Ruin, but once again, you see it really shot the series in a foot for setting up the stipulation that one-off games, just for fun, for the franchise must have some lore in them. There would be nothing wrong with help wanted games if the only lore they had was surface level, with world building instead of integral parts of the lore. And if they don't need it, it could just be a game for the sake of being a game. I mean, for a story that's whole purpose really starts and ends with what is Fazbear Entertainment doing in between Breach and Ruin, never once thinks it's apropos to, oh, I don't know, clarify which ending is secure Breach's canon, explain what happened to Gregory and Glamrock Freddy, give Cass's father a name, explain the status quo of Fazbear Entertainment, what their goal is with the Mega Plute Specs, and of course, it will also ignore every single other plot hole in Security Breach as well. And yes, I'm saying plot hole at this point. After two subsequent entries of not addressing major questions, a condensed list of which I have already given in the beginning of this review, there's no longer a mystery. This is a plot hole and a refusal to address your world building issues. It just seems like at this point we are being vague for the sake of being vague. But at what point do we realize that all this results is things happening without any reason? I mean, that has been the last five years of FNAF lore, has it not? Stuff is just kind of happening. What is it building towards? The Mimic as a main villain? Yeah, I'm so excited about that. In a series that has evolved so much the very first game, it is amazing that despite the tonality and game design evolving, the writing somehow made several steps backwards and that is inexcusable. And at this point, I'm done giving Steelwell and Scott an excuse. Do you know why theorizing is so tense and why debates are so fierce when it comes to FNAF lore? It's because the modern lore sucks. There are no rules like there used to be, no mutually agreed upon elements that allowed the first six games to flourish. Once UCN and then Fazbear Frights came out, and the communication for what was canon and subsequently what the plot of the story even was came into question was the moment everything started to fall apart. Modern FNAF lore is basically the box from FNAF 4 on crack. Scott confidently states, I'm shocked no one could figure out the answer immediately behind my story, while at the same time holding the keys to those answers locked away in a box we can't see through all the while knowing what's inside that box is nothing more than shifting sand. Scott himself has even admitted that the box's contents has changed multiple times throughout the series, and we're seeing this play out in full display with the modern story. Help Wanted. William acted his back, but then we start writing the Tales books, and we got this Mimic character who is really cool, and we got a little pushback for bringing William back, so let's change it so the main villain is the Mimic. Security Breach. Scott gives his direction to Steelwool, but now that all this focus is on the Mimic, it leaves little time for Vanny as so much of her character is left out and forgotten in the plot, despite being set up as the next big bad in the series. Additionally, Scott tried to extend the Mimic's presence into so many aspects of the story to make it seem like a larger plot, having the books involve Gregory, Glistrap, the Mimic, the animatronics, Vanny, and the entire Pizzaplex network, only for none of that to be apparent in the games itself and have it locked away in the books. And since Steelwool, like the fans, only suspect that Burn Trap is supposed to be William, they play it out as such. Ruin. Mimic reveal. The books are canon. Is that crazy? Yeah, it's crazy that you made your twist in a satisfaction literally locked behind an $80 paywall. And on top of that, create your own plot without any care for setup nor the world it resides in. No explanation for Gregory, Vanessa, Freddy, the Pizzaplex, or even George, aka the MXES. Remember when Lefty showed up in FFPS and we got an answer in that very same game about what its purpose was and it was really cool to see what happened to the puppet and how every angle for the fire was thought out? We are never going to get lore like this in the main series ever again. Neither are we going to get another FFPS fire ending. Because as Ruin shows, this era is a fan of the cliffhanger, then telling us to wait for the next entry for more answers. Just like they told us to wait for the next entry for what comes next in Secure Breach just like the tools to wait for the next entry for the follow-up storyline in Help Wanted. Just saying, when we went from FNAF 4, 5, and 6, that was one story, building on top of one another, and each having a sense of finality that you could enjoy every entry without going to the next. 
Playing all the games only allowed you to appreciate that story more, and it was easy to follow with each part having a clear purpose despite having an ambiguous story. Not just easy to follow, but ultimately satisfying if you knew everything or knew the bare minimum. So when we get to Help Wanted 2, and we once again ignore everything that came before and just do our own thing, implying more actions that are happening off screen and telling us big things are coming and we just have to wait, how long is this wait going to be? We have been waiting for five years for literally something, anything to happen. And all we have is a conclusion to a character whose arc never even began. But don't worry, it's being hinted now that Cassie's going to be the new Vanny baby. New Vanny's coming, the character who did nothing, set up as the next Afton, but got replaced with a robot, just got replaced. But who knows, maybe she's also a robot. Maybe Gregory's a robot. Maybe I'm a robot. Dory Origato, your story sucks, Mr. Stato. Dory. Dory. I apologize if I came across super negative in this review. I don't like doing this. Despite what you might think, I don't like being this critical of FNAF. I had my criticisms for the franchise in the past, even during the creation of this podcast. But the story, the world, and the games were so beautiful enough, I could ignore the strokes of the brush that I knew were flawed and focus on the overall masterpiece before me. But I can't do that when it's clear there has been a change in how the artist operates, and that results in a different outcome of his work that is worse off. I can't pretend to like the direction that FNAF has gone through. I can't pretend to like the mimic nor applause character for literally existing. I can't pretend that FNAF has become less mature and that it has done everything it can to insult its original core audience who have now grown up with the series only to see that franchise they love become more infantile. And I can't pretend a lot of these problems come straight down to poor decision-making on Scott Cawthon's part. At the end of the day, this is a problem. And I have to put the blame on someone. Scott has final say in all his work. And I know he's a busy man, but when you work on a franchise that has become this massive, and it's getting too large for you to manage by yourself, well, that's when you need to get more people involved. And I'm not just talking to just creatives like game developers and writers. I was playing T-Fortress 2 the other day. It's one of my favorite games of all time. And what got me into PC gaming. I have over 4,000 hours in this game. Most of which on the Spy. One of the funnest classes to ever be invented in a first-person shooter. I love this game. And I have fond memories playing it after school. But when I played it today, I was greeted with a server filled with sniper bots twirling in the air, instantly headshotting me out of spawn, spamming racial slurs in chat. I load up to the new game, and it is the same thing. I look to see if there is any communication from Valve, and I check the blog to see dead silence. Not even a major update in the game for the past five to six years. Perhaps I'm being too melodramatic. But FNAF feels like that to me. In a rut and under duress with a staff and owner who don't seem to understand the entire thing is in blazing fire and in desperate need for a change. But the change will most likely never come because when it comes to those who can execute those measures, they are so far content with the status quo, leaving these beloved games in a state that is unrecognizable to how I found them in my youth, and borderline unplayable sometimes. All that is to say, I miss Five Nights at Freddy's. But hey, let's not end on a dour note. Click Team Games is working on their own FNAF project, and if the teasers are any indication, we may be going back to roots with traditional office gameplay and return back to the 80s and 90s era for FNAF. The fanverse development scene keeps chugging on greatly, and Pop Goes FNAF 4 and The Joy of Creation looks amazing, and I can't wait to play them. That movie was fantastic, and the sequel has already been confirmed, and Matthew Lillard and Josh Hutchison have already confirmed they'll be reprising their roles. And as strange as it is to say, as it is to compare, just like Team Fortress 2, Five Nights at Freddy's will always survive thanks to its community. And despite all the hardship we have endured, we can at least drink to our victors and drown our sorrows together. And with that, I believe that brings us to a good stopping point for tonight's episode. I have been your host, Nick. And I would like to thank you all once again for listening. Have a good night. And drive home safe.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.